Hello, book lovers, but a farewell to arms. That's right, we're doing Ernest Hemingway's 1929 novel, A Farewell to Arms, here on Adapted, so stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. That's right. Dear readers, welcome. We have the lovely Marissa Serafini. Hello. And I, of course, am Phil Svitek. Welcome back. Welcome to 2018. Yes. We've got lots to discuss. If you're just joining us for the very first time, welcome. A little bit of background. We talk about the book, and we talk about, obviously, how and why it was adapted. Yes. In some instances, there's books that have been adapted into one particular movie. Other times, like the, with the Jungle Book and this one, they've been adapted multiple times. Yes. And secondly, as part of that, we assume it's going to be spoiler-filled. So, you know, you don't have to necessarily have read everything or seen all the movies, but it is going to be spoiler-filled, so be forewarned. And thirdly, if you would like to follow along, we, of course, provide our notes in the description box for your enjoyment. Yes, um, I loved this book. Uh, I suggested this one because we wanted to talk about an American uh, novelist this time around, and one of the ones that came to my head was Ernest Hemingway, and people know him, but I don't think people are like really familiar with his work, so I think this is a great opportunity for people to get to know him a little bit. That's right, and ironically, we got an Italian instead. <laughs> yeah, right. It's uh, a joke, of course. He was he was an American in the Italian army, and uh, well, before we get into the book, let's let's talk about Hemingway because he leads one of the more interesting lives for quote American. He he's lived in Cuba. Well, first off, let, let's track it right. Right. <laughs> so he goes off to to the war, the Great War, as it was so called back then, World War One, as it's now called, and he's in Italy. Through that, he goes to Switzerland. Eventually. He becomes part of the Lost Generation over in Paris, becomes friends with Fitzgerald and um, Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Great. Uh, if you want to see like a great portrayal of Hemingway, A Midnight in Paris, I think we can both agree on is a fun portrayal. All right. Great film. And eventually, you know, one of, one of the interesting parts is he ends up in Cuba. And I've actually been to, because he's such a well-known author, I've been to parts of Cuba where they have his portrait up and you know they're like Hemingway drank here oh his likeness that's amazing I would love to go to Cuba to see just uh, you know his his influence because we know him in America here but to see him and his work and how other people actually react and um, uh, are receptive to, to his work in the other countries so that's that's pretty neat yeah I think you know in particular I, I you know he's resided in, like I said, Paris, and I've been there. Um, but but in Cuba in particular, I, th- I think people just take pride if someone very famous has worked, mm-hmm. and you know called it their home for a, quite a while, regardless of their nationality. Let's say. Yeah, and I think it's nice that Hemingway, because you know, just reading about his his background and his bio, he he was constantly on the move. He he loved going to different places with him multiple times a year. He was constantly traveling, and that's what helped with his writing. So he can write characters that have been in other countries and know the different cultures. And I think you know it's true to to his writing. It's very authentic. Yeah, one one of the things I appreciate about uh, he he started a style. Uh, simplistic style, just very to the point. Uh, much to, he's an American classic author now, but certainly wasn't a, 
you know, in terms of the classics, he veered much differently from his prose and so forth and inspired a whole new generation. To me, uh, Bukowski in particular was very fond of Hemingway's writing. And I think Bukowski created his own style, of course, but Mm -hmm. that was a jumping off point for him. So very influential. Oh yeah, definitely, and and just to know that he he was with Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, it shows just in the generation of amazing writers that he was a part of. He was part of a, a movement, and even so, uh, also Picasso. So it wasn't writing, but he, you know, uh, artists, you know, yeah. artists alike. And you forget at the time that you know all these writers. Yes, they have a legacy now, but at the time they were all just starting out for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were looked on, down upon as crazy somewhat. One of the things I appreciate about Hemingway, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's my own sort of cowardice towards the act of writing, but I feel like everyone's sort of, you know, writing's not manly enough, and maybe in those times. And yet mm-hmm. Hemingway, to me, represents like one of the manliest of men. And... He's a writer. Yeah, he is very macho, and the the different um, portrayals of him in whether it be movies and, and just writing alone shows that he is a very alpha male, um, and he 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 thinks like a man, which is fine. But I think the great thing about his writing, he also understands women, and that's hard for for men to actually get the voice or and like the nuances of what women go through and and how they think and how they talk. I, I think he nails Catherine Barkley down pretty well in this in this book. Yeah, and and even just the whether Ferguson and, and even Van Campen and so forth, there's definitely you know, every, everyone has their role to play. They're not as heavy hitters as obviously Catherine, that's the love interest, but nonetheless Yeah. Uh very true and oftentimes you go through the dialogue and there's, you know, it's four characters talking, and without even saying who says what, just by the nature of it, you're like, oh, that's Rinaldi. Yeah. Or that's whoever. I um, mean, he does a great job of establishing different characters, because this book is very dialogue heavy. And uh, I read this years ago when I was in high school, and I forgot how much dialogue was actually in it. But yeah, like you were saying, you, it doesn't need to say, then Rinaldi said this, and then... Gertrude and not Gertrude, and you know, then then this person said that every it's just constant stream of a conversation for chapters on end, and but it flowed very well. Absolutely, and and again, you, you sort of got it. You, um, you have the same book that I have, and yes. uh, I would rec- recommend it to most people. Um, this is what do we call? Obviously, it's a farewell to arms, but um, it's the Hemingway Library edition. It's yes. a more recent edition, and one of the the reason why I suggest that one in particular because a it has pictures of his writing, and then at the end it it, it talks about the various revisions and so forth, and it's interesting to see how parsed down the initial drafts were, and yet he's always just taking out, taking out, taking out, taking out. Yeah, meticulously re- revising himself, and maybe we can get into the background of the actual writing um, part when he was developing it. But also this book 
uh, contains the foreword of his own sons who have now looked over the book and, you know, put not really their own twist, but, um, you know, put their thought out into the world because, unfortunately, Hemingway is not with us anymore. But it, his legacy still lives on through his family and how his family received him. And it's actually really good. Um, this version, the Hemingway Library Edition, is it's amazing because it shows all the different revisions of the end. just shows just, like, how difficult... And of a time that Hemingway had with just the end. Absolutely. Here's a little bit of trivia for you. One of my first dogs, named Buzz, was found by a family member of Hemingway's named really? Kate Hemingway. Nice. That's a little bit of history for you. So you have a tie to Hemingway family. Nice. Yes. Kate Jealous. Hemingway is a dear friend, and Buzz was too, until he passed away. Uh, anyway, also, for the most part... Hemingway, you know, um, he, he, he wrote a succession of novels, whether um, uh, The Old Man in the Sea, To Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, the Sun and, Also Rises. The Sun Also Rises, and um, each sort of emblematic of various parts of his life. Yeah, and definitely it reflects on the time of what he, he went through and just what the world went through. Um, and we know that he constantly traveled from country to country, so he, he definitely got the, the time and the situations that were happening, like going from World War One to the Great Depression to World War Two, and then even the, the Spanish War after that. Um, he, he has so many different situations in his life that were just big world events and that that's an amazing time to to live through and actually document it yeah absolutely and that's inspiring you know i think every writer could take that and um run with it because to me every time could be incredible mm -hmm. uh but as part of that one of the one of the reasons i like this one um was for the fact of he, he writes first person and so he puts you in there so instead of saying, okay, this is the entirety of World War I, and I'm going to try to understand all the tactics and so forth, no, you'll get the war every now and then, but it's, it's a much more personalized story. Right. I'm glad it, the World War I was just really a backdrop for the setting of which these characters were in. It, it, did, it showed some scenes of what was happening and the, the brutality that happened during World War I, but I loved it was more of a human story compared to... Um, just what was happening in the world. Um, I, l I did love the conversations between the friends because you could see what they were going through every single day as they're walking, um, you know, while they're in the military. It's, it's the human interaction. Let me ask you, what do you, what do you think the old... For me, the real core of the story, it plays out at the end, but, you know, it's kind of solidified in terms of where we're going about four-fifths into the book. Um and so the question being, what did you take the message or the theme of the book to be? Well, I think it's about uh, happiness d despite whatever situation you're in. And it's, it's you know, a lot of times for, for the character of Hemingway, he, when I read him, he was very positive. So he looked at life like full glass, really. You know, the glass was always full. and But we, we can see that that slow diminish while, you know, his relationship with Catherine uh, is here and there, but unt up until the very end. But you can always tell that there was happiness whatever situation he was in. So I I'd have to say one of the main running things is just being happy um, and being positive despite what's happening in the world. 
Interesting. I'm much more of the Silver Linings playbook mentality. <laughs> For those of you who don't get the reference, Silver Linings playbook is a movie starring Bradley Cooper and Jennifer uh, Lawrence. Uh, Marissa has graciously provided a reaction to it in our rundown, so you can check that out or just type in um, Silver Linings playbook reaction to Ernest Hemingway and yes. I'm sure it'll come up. <laughs> Nonetheless, where I'm going with this is the fact that to me... I, I feel like a lot of the happiness he shows, it, and, and he even states it, uh, he understood death, but he felt very distant, like it couldn't happen to him. And at a certain point, maybe he did. And I don't know, it, to, in a sense, the sort of optimism isn't true optimism, it just comes from the fact that he feels nothing. He sees his friends die left and right, mm-hmm. and by the end of the book, you know, just even the way he describes the baby at first, like, I have no feelings towards him before he finds out that it's dead. Just the way he says that so plainly and honestly. And then she dies and she's like, well, nothing else to do but go home to the hotel. Yeah, he's left with nothing. I can see that. That's, a, that's also very, that's a sad way. <laughs> yes, I understand. That's a very sad way. Here I was so happy and you were so... <laughs> that's it. Uh, I, I understand that. But I think that just the character of Hemingway, because every time he was with Catherine, he had a reason to live. Um, and I think that's why his friends died off so quickly, because they didn't really have anyone else in their lives. They It seemed like they were very single. They were party guys. You know, they, they like to have fun. But Hemingway had a reason to live because he had Catherine always in his life and he had something to always go back to. And I think that's why he remained as joyous as he was in every situation. All right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I mean, yeah, I, I de- definitely don't disagree with you that it gave him something to look forward to. But I definitely think he was... He just rode the middle. He wasn't happy. He wasn't sad. Okay. That's fair. But let's talk about the structure overall. It's broken up into, quote, books. Mm -hmm. A total of 41 chapters across these books. What do you think of the structure? Um, I think it was actually pretty well-structured because uh, you can tell, like, the first book is how he met Catherine. The second book is when he left Catherine for the first time and got injured third book is how he went back to Catherine so it's the different times when they were together and when they were apart and um it is actually very well structured because and it's easy to break it down and, and adapt it to a film because those are your acts essentially that's where the you have the the break between the romance scenes and chapters compared to what the guys were fighting during the war it was it was very easy to go back and forth yeah Absolutely. Uh, I, I rather enjoyed it too. And I think just overall his chapters are very structured simply. And what I love about it, he he just moves. The amount of story he's able to really tell mm-hmm. is quite significant because it, that, that thing just keeps moving. One to, uh, within one sentence, he could be at the hospital, then at the bar, then back at the hotel room. Yeah. Constant momentum, and that's what I liked because every time he was with Catherine, they had their their moments of calmness. I guess you can say they were just together. They were they were really just enjoying each other's presence. They weren't doing anything like over the top, say like clubbing or dancing or something. They were just together, um, and just having like deep, meaningful conversations. Which it slowed down the pace, but it was 
it was more nice and relaxed compared to when he's with his friends and they're going through the war and stuff. They are constantly moving. They are marching every single day and moving from place to place. Um, it just there was a natural momentum to to every chapter. Yes, and you know as we're talking about it, one of the things I'm thinking about is this idea. Hemingway started off as a journalist, and that's sort of how he learned to write. And if you really mm-hmm. think about that, yes, they're, they keep things as compressed as possible, but also they try to offer up a neutral opinion, which is interesting because when, when you then make it from the pers- first-person perspective in terms of a novel, you know you add a sort of bias to it. And yet Hemingway is able to sort of tell it matter-of-fact. And so he says, this is how I felt, but he doesn't necessarily give opinion on whether that feeling is good or bad. It's just that's how it was. Yeah. And and also, uh, Hemingway describes it within the friends, too. There, there was a moment where the friend was talking about when he was injured only because a kid threw off a potato bomb or something like that. And the guy wasn't as upset as normally one person would. It was just like, this happens in the war, accept it. We don't know why people do it because it seems like they just want to do it. Um, but you just accept it. So there, it wasn't really leaning towards one way or the other. Like yeah. whose side we should be rooting for, which country we should be rooting for. Yeah, well, especially because, you know, <clears throat> there was the Germans, there was the Italians, the Austrians, the Hungarians. and mm-hmm. You know, the Americans were helping the French, according to him, and so forth. So, um, but I, but I, I did appreciate even just the, the history aspects of it. Of you know, you can call it propaganda, you can call it news, whatever you want, of, of how, how things worked essentially. Yeah, and it wasn't really hitting you over the head like propaganda usually does. It's just they we were watching in a voyeuristic lens, watching these these guys and i loved how they all had different nationalities we had the american we had the actual italians we had the germans and the french um and, and the brits yeah and the brits we we had so many different nationalities and they were all just kind of on the same playing field despite all the countries that are actually at war at each other and it, it was nice to see everyone's different opinions on what was happening Yes, indeed. And one of the lines you highlighted, and I actually kind of was speaking to earlier, if people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So, of course, it kills them. Yes. And and that was Hemingway's actual quote for why uh, the whole justification and why he, spoiler alert, because you've read the book now, why he killed off Captain Barkley at the end. So, it's, it's like, it's death. You know, and it was the one thing that could actually break him, uh, break Henry. And it's, yeah, and you know, you don't really realize it towards the end, but the amount of suffering this guy has actually already gone through. Mm-hmm. And you know, he calls back to it: syphilis with Rinaldi and being shot, and 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 so forth. Um, and the fact that he is essentially the sole survivor of all of this, yeah, is uh, is a testament, but also. Makes you feel bad. Yeah, it was like the death of his loved one was ultimately the the, the last straw, essentially, that broke the camel's back and, and broke him as a person because he did go through disease and um, warfare and stuff, but it was the, the death of a loved one that ultimately broke him, which is sad. 
Yeah, and even before that, remember there was talks of him fe- be- being a coward since he became a civilian instead of you know being part of the army, which you know what, to me wasn't necessarily a hundred percent his choosing. I think he, mm-hmm. as the book tells it, you know, he was sort of forced out because they were essentially hunting them for being officers or thinking that they were Germans and Italian. Right. Like, they were being chased down, so he had to run. And it wasn't because, like, hey, I'm bored with war. I don't want to fight anymore. It's like, no, I'm I'm leaving to save my own life. Yes, which which uh, is quite sad because that truly then highlights the horrors of it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, but when it comes to and in, in a sense, you talk about the wars of horror, uh, the horrors of war, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately he couldn't escape them because while they were in Switzerland, a neutral country, you know what? It, it's not the war that directly killed the baby, killed Catherine, but it, I'm not. It, it just that's the horrors. The war you can't escape it. It's yeah. everywhere. War in a way is war of life. Yeah, war of life. It, it is um, like he was fighting life and, he, and just the naturalism of Mother Nature. Uh, like war in a sense, and like I've never, fortunately, never been to work, so I can't really speak to it. But war in a way is somewhat controllable. You can decide if you're going to go to war or not. You can decide if you're, you you're going to be in the military to fight back or you don't. And but fighting life, you you can't control if someone lives or dies, and that's uh, I think that's a, a really good theme in in the book that um, there are some things you can control and some things you couldn't. Well, also to one, he, not that he would have ever spoken about this because you know he couldn't predicted how things went, but back then it was an honor and noble to be in the military. That's why Rinaldi was like, "Oh, you're gonna get, you're gonna get the silver, you know, mm-hmm. or you're gonna get this," because that's what people want. That was the recognition, and and it was it was not only your duty but an honor. Now I feel like, at least in America, it's the notion towards being in the military is a lot different. Yeah, and, and even back then, he volunteered to be in the war because. This right now at this was before America even got involved in World War One. So it was his doing that he actually actively joined to fight for with the Italians. So that he really wanted to be a part of it. So that itself is a noble act for someone to volunteer themselves into war. Um, yeah, and today I think it's it is still an honor to to fight and serve for your country too but there is some taboo to it and then people don't look at a lot of people who come back all war torn um in the same positive way that you know people should yeah and it's unfortunately it's a little sad but it is so let's let's talk about the various adaptions and why you would even want to adapt it i think number 1 um, it's a great World War One story, and I don't think those are told as often. I mean, initially they were, but now since World War Two, I feel like every if you're going to tell a war movie, everyone's telling a World War Two movie. Yeah, and I think World War One in itself is horrific enough and interesting enough to tell, and so I appreciate that that there is that bit of history that still captures it. So I think that that's an aspect, and the the, the age old. Uh, quote, you know, all's fair in love and war. And so this is a love story. It's a war story. Combine the two together, you got a masterpiece. And you have a farewell to arms. Oh, I, I mean, I liked it. And 
the the versions that I know that are out there about Farewell to Arms, you have like two of them. There's a 1932 film, and then there's a 1959 film. Seven. 57 film. And uh, they... And if you think about it, at the times that they were actually released, like 1932 film was released during the Great Depression. It was after World War One, but it was during the Great Depression. This book was actually released the day the stock market crashed, which I, I think is actually fairly fascinating. Um, and so it's an it's enough time after World War One, but still soon enough for people to know what happened during the war. Like that generation still alive while they're watching it. And then when we had the 1957 one, it's after World War Two. So people just know the the horrific stories of just World War One and World War Two combined. So it is relevant for both of these films when they were released. Yeah, and you know, to that point, as far as like him writing it and then the way it ties into the Fifty Seven movie, I think well, in for him writing it, he needed time to process the war. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think it would have been a little bit difficult to okay, I'm. You know, out of the country, I'm I'm safe, I'm good, and now here I go typing my story. Something like this, the honesty with which he wrote, needed to sit there. And I think before putting out a World War II movie in 1957, you know what? We just got done with that. Let's not literally, but figuratively, let's uh, let's start with something that has a we we know right, somewhat right. of an ending before we like de- de- decompress about World War II. Right. And the interesting thing about this is that this book, you know, conception-wise, it it actually did happen to Ernest Hemingway. He did he he was in the Italian military and he did get injured, sent to a hospital in Milan, met a girl, um met a nurse, but she ultimately left him. And that that was like the genesis of just the 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 story of, you know, Catherine and Henry together. And um, but it took it took Hemingway many multiple years to even write that story after it actually happened. My favorite ending that he tried to write in is the nothing ending. She died, and we all die. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Of like the one thing I promise you is you're gonna die and I'm gonna die and that's it. That's it. Accept it essentially. And but knowing that this actually happened in a way, in real life to him, you can understand why he killed Catherine Barkley. Maybe out of spite, probably something cathartic as a writer. Um, you would kill the woman that actually ultimately hurt you in real life. Um, but also how the book just ends, there's really no resolution. That just happens. Yeah, you're just, you're just kind of there. Um, and that's why it, it's a great... As far as adapting it, it's got great dialogue and, and so forth. And because the ending is so much open for interpretation, uh, you know, like when we talk about the 1957 version, the last lines in it, he's having flashbacks to her. She says, uh, you know, I want a strange life. That's the only life for me. Mm-hmm. And so she, she literally gets the last word. And so even that small change changes the tone of what you're left with. And so... I think that's the you're given an amazing blueprint, but how you end it is how you see the world. Yeah. Whether it's the same as Hemingway or you want to tell us a slightly different story. Right. And I did actually watch both of these films, the 1957 and the 1932, and they are drastically different from each other. And but what is actually similar is that they kept 
a lot of some of the exact same dialogue um, in, in some particular lines. They, they really <coughs> kept true to the book. Like one of them in, in both of the movies was uh, I'm Afraid of the Rain because I see myself dead in the rain. I see you also dead in the rain. And that just ties to the ending when Catherine actually dies and he walks back to the hotel in the rain. Rain is literally the last word of the book. So it, it just shows that it, it is a symbolic thing in the book. Um, there, there are a few moments and um, characteristics that are still the same with the yeah. actors. but yeah, and, I, and I like that because the movie pulls out those elements and obviously creates put, puts a visual behind it. So as far as the rain, you know, even the hospital, she says, I think it's raining. So that that gives you an indication. And, you know, if you haven't read the book and you're watching the movie and there's the rain, because as far as um, him and his friends, when they're first walking and, and there's the retreat, they're walking in the rain. Yeah. You know, how many times does the rain come into play? And then they're on the boat. It's raining again all all the time at any sort of major intersection. There's that rain. It's raining. And... That rain, like I'm afraid of the rain line, is so early in the book that it conditions the reader. Like every time you see rain, you think something bad is actually going to happen, and something bad ultimately did happen. Fine. Usually, it At does. I mean, most yeah. part, you can say at every interval that something bad does happen. Something happens. Like he gets blown up. He gets sent here. He has to flee here. Yeah, it's true. Rain is an omen in in this book. Absolutely, and that that's the. As far as the movies were concerned, you know, they they ultimately changed a couple of the elements. Like, as far as the book, you're able to play out the scenes a lot longer, which I appreciated. Uh, and But the movies did a nice job of slowing it down. As far as the, like, Catherine and Henry dialogue, you know, I, I read it with lightning speed. And so I went through it fast, and I imagined them saying it fast versus in the movie – uh, they spoke a lot slower, and yeah. it gave, I was like, "Oh, this works for the movie." So it gave it, it, it gave it such color, and I was able to, even though it was different than the movie in my head, it played wonderfully. And I think both versions can coexist like that. Right, and I liked the 1957 one because I think that movie had actually a great pace. It did a great job of setting up the characters and how they met and when they talked to each other. And I think they actually did a really good job of eliminating a lot of the um, superfluous dialogue that's in this book. Um, the, the times when we see characters interact was actually something important that moved the plot forward. And the 57 version is great because after there was a serious situation, they had a great job of building moments of levity. There were mm. moments of humor um, after every serious beat. And I think it, it's a really solid film. Yeah, and, you know, some of the things that they changed, uh, you know, is one of the big ones for me, uh, as far as them leaving, they, were, they they sort of were more in control of their life than perhaps in the book. Like, they had a lot of friends that helped them out. Mm -hmm. In particular, them going to Switzerland, they had friend in the book that, A, told them, like, they're going to get arrest you in the morning, B... Let me help you. I packed you some sandwiches. Here's a boat. Go. Right. And this one, they sort of came up the decision by themselves. So it was interesting to to see that aspect of it. 
Right, and the the interesting thing is from the 1957 version, you see them like make that decision immediately and row across the, the, the humongous lake to get into the next country. That happens so fast, and, and I like that. In the 1932 version, it's not really, you don't really see them actually rowing, you just see them actually fleeing on foot into mm-hmm. another country. It, I, while watching it, um, they did a great job of building the suspense that they're actually being chased down by the police who are going to arrest them. It felt like the equivalent of Sound of Music when the whole family is actually escaping the Nazis at the end. It was edited in that way, in, in great suspense of, like, we literally have to hide from these people. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's cool to see different versions and how they take on the, the fleeing moment. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, certainly one of my favorite characters was Rinaldi because he's just such a character. Baby! <laughs> I liked him. He, You could say that he is the, the comic relief. Um, mm. and But he, he was just a good friend for uh, Henry to go through all these situations with because I think if you go through all these terrible events by yourself you're you're not going to live very long and it's always good to see adventure when you have that a, a partner with you absolutely and and i felt bad when he got when he got syphilis mm, yeah. quite sad indeed poor baby but those were the sign of the times they didn't have the medicine and vaccinations to help deal with that indeed um and even you know one Obviously, when we talk when we talk about Henry, the fact that his leg was affected, but um, in the book Jaundice, mm-hmm. um, he went through that. So he he suffered both physical and mental. Yeah. If you really break it down of what he went through. Yeah, I mean Henry went through a lot, and but the interesting thing is they completely eliminated the Jaundice storyline from both of those films. Yeah, which. Again, it, it just it, it's a subplot you don't need. You already got the leg. Yeah. So he's dealing with enough. Um so I think yeah, for, the, for I mean when you look at it, it you know, the 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 50s version was a two and a half hour movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you've already crammed and they they got most of everything in. So you you're already cramming enough, so you you definitely have to eliminate a couple of things. Yeah, and the leg was obviously a bigger situation. The leg is what helps get Henry back to to Catherine, and uh, the injury was long enough to sustain the story for over a six month period. Um, and within that, a lot happens with the the relationship and romance. So jaundice is—I uh, mean, I've never had jaundice, but it's usually a treatable thing within a week to two weeks, compared to a leg injury that could, you know, ruin your entire life. Yeah, and I think as far as the book is concerned, the reason why it's in the book, you know, and it's tough to make this comparison in the movie because the more you add it in, I think it detracts. But as far as the book, remember he he was talking with Van Campen and, she, you know, he asked her, have you ever had this sort of pain? And she says no. And he was trying to get to the idea of childbirth, but she just got so upset, as she normally did with him, that they were never ever able to make that comparison. And so... You know, when you sort of look at it, the book ends with Catherine's death. And when you talk about pain, mm-hmm. I think she went through similar pain um, like that. I think that's why it's in there, at least for 
me. That's what I get out of it. Right. And she, she went through a physical pain as well. Uh, unfortunately, it happened all in one night compared to over a sustainable six-month period for Henry. Um, it's like everyone experiences pain in different ways, whether it be physical or mental. Uh, Catherine disintegrated so quickly, though, in, in the hospital. You can see... When she was admitted, she was happy and joyful, but then when the contractions happened, she wanted more anesthesia, and then she literally got loopy mentally, and she's like, I'm such a mess, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I wanted to be strong. And you can just see the disintegration and the downward spiral that her character went through in a matter of hours. Yeah, it was, that's a, it's a tough thing to watch, and especially in movie form. That, that represents 25, 30 minutes of... The, of of the movie mm-hmm. and even the book. I mean, that's a, what the last 70, 80, 90 pages. Yeah. It's the last few chapters. Definitely. So, um, definitely a large portion of that. And, um, and that's where I, I, I like the way he slowed things down when he needed to and kept things fast in terms of Hemingway. And, and I, I think the movie did that well too. Right. And, you know, during the, her slow downward spiral, you, the audience soon realized what was happening, that she was ultimately going to lose it because they kept, they, there was a whole, I don't even want to call it tirade, it was just like this, this slew of rants that she was like, it, I'm, I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die. And then she's like, I am going to die, I am going to die. And the audience just like realized that, yeah, she probably will. Yeah, and I also, as far as that, he's grappling with the with the same notion. Is she going to die? No, no, she can't die. And this and that. And in the book, I mean, he literally goes back and forth with the same lines for like two pages. So much yeah. so that if you want, you could just skip those two pages and you're like, okay. But, but reading them has that effect of, wow, this guy is really going nuts. And I appreciated how they were able to handle that in the movie because it's, it, it's an internal dialogue, but then the easy way is just externalize it and see how crazy he's going over this. Right. And what was also ironic is that the, the doctors and the nurses were like, you can leave for now. You can go for away for 15, 30 minutes, take a break. Um, she's fine. She's fine. Like, no, she's not fine. It's like, this is why you never leave the woman who's having childbirth alone in a hospital. Like, she, you need to always be there, even though you think it's over. It's not. It's not. And, you know, just the irony where everyone kept saying, no, it's fine, you can leave. She's fine. No. You knew she wasn't going to be. Yeah, and he felt it too, obviously. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's pick our favorite portrayal of each character. Um, overall, I really love the way Rock Hudson did Henry. But as I said, uh, just because I, I loved him from the book, I really liked Rinaldi as a character and I, I think they captured him well on the screen yeah I, I loved I loved both of the the casting for for Henry and Catherine Barkley in the 1957 version his character Rock Hudson he was just so charming and charismatic throughout the entire film and we we saw the moments where Jennifer Jones who, who played Catherine Barkley in the 1957 version he there was moments of vulnerability and that insecurity that she has 
just as a woman, but him being a, a good man, he was like, no, no, you're not this, you're, you're not that. He was like, he was always reassuring. And they had amazing chemistry on screen, so I really did like that pairing compared to the Gary Cooper, um, Helen Hayer in the 1932 version. But I did like the Mary Forbes, who played Miss Van Campen in 1932 version, better, because she was just so merciless. She she was straight. She was stone cold, just mm. straight up biage, and but that's what you read in the book. Um, you have to have that judgmental woman who's like, "Oh, I know what you guys are doing. You shouldn't be doing it." And um, she she was just so true to the character that I read, um, and and so dislikable. It was great. Yeah, Gary Cooper. Uh, I, I think this wasn't necessarily the movie that would have been best for him. Like, you know, High Noon, obviously that that's a movie that he's most known for. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a reason. You know, I think I think that was the role he was meant for versus this is something it's got a little bit di- different bravado. I don't I don't know how to quite describe it. As far as missing any character, I really wanted to see the barber that that would have hated him. <laughs> barber. Because the barber in the book mistakes him for being an Austrian. Mm-hmm. And so he, he shaves him, but he's not happy about it. No, no. It also good moments of levity, but we didn't have that in, in the movies. Because in, as great as and funny as a scene that is, it doesn't move anything forward. So it's like you, you got to keep the momentum going. Uh, what, what's interesting about both of these films, like the actors that they actually had, they are all of them are actually very well established in the acting career. Um, so Rock Hudson, at this time, uh, he was nominated Academy Award for Best Actor in Leading Role in Giant, which was 1956, a year right before that. So, And then Jennifer Joan won the Academy Award for Best Actress for The Song of Bernadette in 1943. So she was already an Academy Award winner. Um, in the 1932 version, we had Gary Cooper, who had won two best, uh, two Academy Awards for Best Actor for like before this movie, uh, sorry, like after, 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 and Helen Hayes also an Academy Award winner um, before uh, this one, the nineteen two. So they were very well established actors, all of them. Um, also, probably another reason why they were released at the time they were because we weren't alive for it, but they were big in the acting um, careers. Hmm. At the time that the they were studio released. system was much, much, much different than yes. it is today. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad. And you know what? This is a movie. There's often, you know, now you get a lot of remakes and so forth. Mm-hmm. I actually wouldn't necessarily mind this remade if it was done well. I think there's there's a version to be made and adapted for everybody. It actually, it was a play. Yeah, it could easily be translated to a play. Um, so that's, that's, what's interesting. Um, you know, so, you know, despite the country jumping, it's, it's easy to portray the, uh, and convey the idea that you're traveling to another country. That's, you just change the backdrop and there you go. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, that about does it for adapted and, and Ernest Hemingway's a farewell, farewell to arms. Next month, to get you guys prepared, we're going to be doing Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, you guys check out the movie, read the book. It will actually be the 27th anniversary of the movie. Right on Halloween. They're not Halloween. Halloween, Valentine's Day. Yes. It's yes, so Valentine's. horrific to me that I call it Halloween. <laughs> right. But that's also why we're, we're choosing it 
uh, choosing to do this book in the month of February because the movie itself was actually released on Valentine's Day in February of 1991. Counter-programming? Yeah, a bit. Just a a bit. Just a bit. So grab that book, watch the movie. We're going to be talking about it. Um, Both are excellent. Yes. Also, we encourage you guys to comment on this one. Also, subscribe if you haven't done so. Uh, we appreciate that, and, and leave a rating on if you're listening. Leave a rating, and so forth. That that means the world to us. Yes. Any final thoughts? Um, I am so glad that we reread this one because I, I loved *A Farewell to Arms*. I read it as a teenager in high school, and uh, it stuck with me for so long. I wanted to reread it, and I, I have a better appreciation for it as an adult because. The first time I read it, I loved the romance side of it. And as an adult, I love just the, the humanistic aspect of everybody. So I'm, I'm glad we read it. Yes, I am too. And uh, you guys should as well if you haven't done so. Although, while you're listening to us, hey, I won't judge. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys as always. We appreciate it. In the meantime, follow at Serafini TV. That's right. And check us out. Me and Marissa do another podcast called Anatomy of a Movie. So if you kind of like what we do in terms of the thoughts, the breakdowns, the themes, and so forth, we do a similar thing with movies. So definitely check that out. That's over on PopcornTalk.com. Again, it's Anatomy of a Movie. And uh, the the biggest favor you guys can do to us is just spread the word that Adapted is here. We're going to continue doing it. We have a love of books. We have a love of movies. And so this is the best way to combine it. And we truly, truly appreciate you coming along on the journey with us and being great readers. See you next time. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menounos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at BookCircleOn. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.